happened to him? Who stole all my handouts? I need one of those. Yeah, might be. I kind of want to introduce the book of Psalms for you this morning. Somebody uh, tell me when it's 10 after. I don't know. Anything. <laughs> yeah, okay. Thanks. Uh, you can see the Hebrew title on the page that's been handed out is Tehillim, which means complaints or prayers or requests. And then Septuagint is the word psalmos, from which we get the word psalm. And psalmos means to pluck an instrument, like to play a stringed instrument. Uh, if you were to go to Psalm 8, for example, you'd see in the title of Psalm 8, the titles were probably added uh, at the second temple. If you know the history of Israel, you know that uh, Israel went into captivity uh, about 722 B.C., went into Assyria. And then the southern kingdom, Judah, was taken into Babylon and became slaves in Babylon in about 586 B.C. And then when they returned... They rededicated the temple in 516 B.C. In other words, from 586 to 516, they were in Babylon. They stopped speaking Hebrew. And they started speaking the language of Babylon, which is called uh, by several names, but the main name is Aramaic, because the area up there is called Aram. Uh, Abraham was an Aramean. He was called from that area, and so the Jews went back there and became slaves. Um, my wife's dad's name is Enrico Ernesto Pietro Nardoni, and uh, he spoke Italian in the home all the time. Uh, spoke Italian whenever he got with his, with his family. But after we were married about 40 years, I'd ask him a word in, Hebrew, or in uh, Italian, and he couldn't think of the word. You lose it if you don't use it. Now, once he went back to Italy or something, he would have begun. He would have picked it up again quickly. But uh, my wife speaks maybe three words of Italian, like no, and uh, see, si, and <laughs> yeah, ragu, prego. <laughs> so anyway, uh, they lost the Hebrew language uh, when they went into captivity. So when they came back and started the new temple, Jeremiah had said it would be 70 years of captivity. So they rededicated the new temple on the exact date of the destruction of Solomon's temple, 70 years later. So they were literally fulfilling that prophecy of Jeremiah. So when they opened the new temple, the second temple, which wasn't a, wasn't a special building, when they uh, dedicated that temple, all the young people were laughing and clapping their hands and singing, and all the poor old people were crying because they remembered Solomon's temple. And this temple wasn't a patch on Solomon's temple. But they took the Psalms then and collected them into five books, and there were five different people who did this. There were probably thousands of Psalms. 
but they collected 150 and put them in five books. And you can see, if you look in your Bibles, look at book, look at Psalm 1, and you'll see above that it says Book 1. And then Psalm, Book 2 starts at Psalm 42. Book 3 starts at Psalm 73 and so on. So there are five books of Psalms, and we know they were collected independently by someone over a period of thousand years or so by some different people because uh, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are the same uh, in two different books. So there are many other Psalms, but these are the 149. If you add 14 and 53 in there, it's 150, even though they're basically the same Psalm. And the Psalms change over the years, but the titles were added in the second temple. So if you go to Psalm 8, you'll see that it says, in Hebrew it says, Al-Kitara. That's the Hebrew word for guitar. So Psalm 8 was to be played on a guitar, or a guitar-like instrument. So there's a lot of things like that in the titles of the Psalms. There are approximately 1,875 quotations from the Old Testament in the New Testament. And almost half of those come to Psalms. Uh, Hebrew poetry does not rhyme usually. You know, you can't translate a rhyme. I mean, you know that from one language to another. Uh, If you try to rhyme something, it won't translate. But So the Hebrews didn't do that. God wanted the word apparently to be translatable. So all he does is parallelism of ideas in the Psalms. So you have ideas that connect with other ideas. We're going to see this in a little bit when we look at Psalm 1. The earliest psalm recorded in the Old Testament is Exodus 15. After they crossed the Red Sea and the Egyptians were destroyed, which Paul connects to baptism, which I think is really cool because it means the enemy is destroyed in baptism. Um, So when they crossed the Red Sea and God delivered them, then they sang a song of deliverance. And that's the first time the word psalmos appears, the word psalm. And uh, it's a song of deliverance. And that's Moses and Miriam, uh, his sister, older sister, and how God delivered them. Uh, Several types of psalms, and you can see them listed there. The longest psalm uh, is about the Word of God. That's Psalm 119, and there are eight synonyms for the Word in that psalm. That's the one that says, Your Word is a light to my feet and a lamp to my pathway. Uh, Your Word I have uh, treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Uh, I love Psalm 119. It's a great one. Traditionally, David's name is connected to 73 of the psalms, but he probably wrote some others. Uh, Also, 12 Psalms of Asaph, who was a temple, uh, apparently a worship leader. The sons of Korah, who came along much later in the second temple. Jeduthun, who could be Solomon, wrote three. Solomon's name's connected with two of them, but I think one of them, you know, the problem with Hebrew is it's ambiguous. And when it says Lishlomo in Hebrew... It means either to Solomon or for Solomon. So it could have been written by, and I think it was written by David, like Psalm 72 ends. Uh, it's a, it's, the title says, Lishlomo, to Solomon, belonging to Solomon or 
before Solomon. But the last verse of that psalm says, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So somebody added that verse to tell us this is the last psalm David wrote, and he wrote it about Solomon. See? So it's ambiguous. You can't tell whether whether it's for Solomon or, or by Solomon. There's one by Moses in there. There's one by Ethan the Ezraite. One by Heman, and then there are others called Orphan Psalms that have no names attached. David wrote some of those. We know from Acts 4, when they quote Psalm 2, which has no title, they say David wrote it in Acts chapter 4. <clears throat> so David was probably the author of some of the ones called Orphan Psalms. What are the Psalms? Wise writings of men who won the relationship of God that rose above the law. I want you to think about that a minute. The word Torah, you may have seen me spell that out before. Hebrew word Torah, each letter has a numerical value. You add that up, it's 611. So the word Torah means 611. There are 611 laws, regulations, rules, judgments, and so on, ordinances, in the Old Testament. Those are given by God. So God's Torah is 611. And if you try to live your life by 611 rules, can you imagine? Can you imagine? 365 negative rules plus a whole bunch of positive things. And you're trying to live your life by that. You can't do it. It'll break you. And so these psalms are written by people who want a relationship with God that rises above that law. We have a song in our hymnals, um, Break Thou the Bread of Life. You remember that song? Uh, There's a word in there that says, Beyond the sacred page, I seek you, Lord. In other words, we want a relationship with God that rises above the Bible. The Bible is printed words. The Bible was not nailed up on Calvary for you. But there was a person nailed up on Calvary. A person who is the basis of this book. Who is the basis of all truth. Uh, Who is truth? He says he is the way, the truth, and the life. The rabbis say Torah is the way, the truth, and the life, the law. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the fulfillment of all the law. And so we want a relationship with him that rises above the written code. I have a friend uh, who was the president of Colegio Biblico in Mexico, and his wife left him. And in Mexico, that's a devastation of of ministry. That's the end of it. And he had to resign. So he lost his wife. He lost his job. And he was driven to the Psalms. And he came to our chapel on campus and spoke on Psalm 119 because he had discovered there again, the way many others have, that your relationship with God is based on the written law, but it goes far beyond the written word. Relationship with God is a personal relationship. You understand that Jesus is a person. God is a person. Actually, three persons. So, 
They are uh, men wanting to have a relationship with God above the written law. And this is why the Psalms are added to many New Testaments, because there's nothing like the Psalms anywhere else. Just the book of Psalms is unique. And as I said, it's quoted more than any other book in the Old Testament in the New. The titles of the individual Psalms, that next paragraph, may contain the author, who the psalm is written to or for, a historical note, a tune to be sung with it, or an instrument to be played with it. And psalms can be used for personal worship out in the, out in the field, or they can be used in corporate worship. Uh, I don't know if your church sings any of the books of Psalms, but if you sing the book, Cleanse Me, o, if you sing the song, Cleanse Me, O God, that's Psalm 139. Uh, and you sing that, if you sing that song in, from the hymnal, that's, that's based on that. The books were, uh, I mentioned were collected independently of each other, the five books of Psalms. And uh, Solomon is said to have written many Psalms, but his name is attached to only two in the Psalter which is another word for the book of Psalms. Psalm 9 and 10 together are an acrostic poem, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. In Hebrew, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, Hey, Vav, Zion. You know, it's based on the alphabet, and if you put 9 and 10 together, it makes one psalm. It's an acrostic. Uh, Lamentations 1 through 3 is also acrostic. It's organized to be memorized. Psalm 119, that long 176-verse psalm, has eight words, eight verses, starting with Alpha, Aleph, the first letter. The next eight start with the second letter. The next eight with the third letter, and so on. It's written to be memorized. The psalms contain a lot of musical notes, like Selah. I'm sure you've run across that if you've looked at the psalms. Selah means to lift up. Now, we don't know what that they're lifting up. It could be to lift up the voice. It could be to lift up your hands from the instruments so you're not playing them anymore. It could be lifting up the music in a crescendo. You know, whatever it is, it's a musical note that means to lift up. Uh, others, sheer just means song. Uh, masculine means uh, uh, to cause wisdom. A miktam is jumping around, and it's kind of a crazy dance psalm and so on. Each one of these is different. The last one is gitith, and that's the word guitar, the stringed instrument that's with Psalm 8. You know Psalm 8, right? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Probably sing that. So I want to look at Psalm 1 with you. If you've got your Bibles open to Psalm 1, you can look with me. Or if you've got your phone open to Psalm 1, or your Kindle, or your whatever the books are, Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. There are many different kinds of psalm, messianic, royal, uh, praise, prayer, so on. This is a wisdom psalm. There are several wisdom psalms. And this one here, I think we'll be able to see uses the parallelism I was talking about, where it's a parallelism of ideas, a series of ideas. And there's three major kinds of ideas. Ideas that compare, contrast, or complement. 
I always have to simplify things and make it so I can understand it, you know. In the, in the books, they call it antithetical, synthetic, and synonymous parallelism, but I'd just soon use these terms. They make better sense. <laughs> I'm telling you, they don't know any better, these scholars. They, they think everybody has their vocabulary. Psalm 1, verse 1. How many of you memorized Psalm 1? thought you might have. That's one of my favorites. Now, if I were translating this, I would not translate it blessed. It's a plural word, and it's emphatic position. Asherei ha'ish, the Hebrew says. Oh, the joys. That's what it really means. It's an emphatic word, plural. Oh, the joys of the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the mockers. That's what NIV says. Now, if you look at this, can you tell me what three progressions are there? There's three progressions of three things in this verse. What's the first one? Yeah, first you've got walk, then stand, then sit. So it's a progression where you're slowing, you're walking, and then you're slowing down and standing, and then you go sit. And when you sit, that means you're not going to change. You're not going to move. You're, you're too prideful to move. And then the counsel, way, and seat. You see that. And then the third is three different kinds of people. The wicked, the sinners, and the mockers. Wicked is the broadest term for uh, an evil person. It's used for uh, the, the Gentile nations around the Jews. It's used sometimes for the Jewish people. But it means somebody who knows there's a God but doesn't give a flip. You know, doesn't care. Doesn't let it interfere with them. And then after the wicked, you have sinners. Now, this is a person who practices sin. So this is another kind of person, a worse kind of person. And then the last one, the mocker. Uh, these are the people who have had it up to here with religion. They don't want to hear about God. Uh, if they do, they make fun of it. They mock it. And so there, there are three progressions of three things. And he says, Oh, the joys of the man who has not been involved in these things. Now look at the order. Walking in the counsel of the wicked. In other words, you live by what wicked people tell you to do. You watch TV and follow their example. You read the, the magazines and follow their example. That's what he's saying. And then stand in the way of sinners means you've taken a position. And you're sinning along with the sinners. And then the third is you sit in the seat of the mocker. You're not going to move and you've had it with religion. You don't want to hear about God. And blessed is the man, oh, the joys of the man who has not done this. So that it's expressed negatively here in the first verse. And you see the parallelism, right? These three parallels are parallelism of ideas, not rhyming. Though there are places in Hebrew where it rhymes, but mostly it's uh, like this, parallelism of ideas. 
And then verse 2, his delight. This is the guy's greatest pleasure, okay? He hasn't gotten involved with wicked sinners or mockers. But his greatest delight is in the law of Yahweh. Notice that word, Lord. I've probably told you this before, or you may have heard it before. When the word Lord is capitalized all the way through, that's the personal name, Yahweh. That's the name God gave Moses out of the bush. Okay? When Moses said, Who shall I say sent me? He said, I am whatever I am, or whoever I am. Independent being. But then he tells Moses, Tell them Yahweh sent you. So here's the personal relationship, Lord. Then there's another word spelled like that in the Old Testament. Not in the New, but in the Old. And when it's spelled like that, it's the Hebrew word Adon, or Adonai, uh, which means uh, the human figure of God. If you uh, look at Psalm 110, which I'll probably talk about later this week, verse 1, it uses both of these words in the first line. Psalm 110.1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. See, this is God, the Father, speaking to the Son. Sit at my right hand. This was the proof verse that Jesus used to show that he was not only David's son, but he was also David's Lord. Matthew uh, 22:44. in that context there. He asked them the question. They had been asking him questions all week trying to trap him, and he turned them every which way but loose. And then he came back with a question that nobody could answer. He says, whose son is the Messiah? And they said, why, he's the son of David, of course. Jesus said, oh, how is it that David then, speaking by the Spirit, called him Lord? How can he be his Lord and his son at the same time? He is Alpha and Omega, see? Like Romans starts out. He is the son of David according to the flesh, but by the spirit of holiness was marked off as son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So he's spirit and flesh. He is two in one. He is man and God. So his delight, a person who doesn't get involved with wicked people, his greatest joy is in the word of the Lord. Have you? Do you feel that? Do you have joy in the Word? See, most Christians in most churches have Bibles, but they don't really spend time in it. And if I can lay a guilt trip on you to read the Bible, I'll do that, because it's worth it. Reading the Bible is incredible. You'll learn so much. I suggest reading Genesis first and then read John. Because John is the fulfillment of what Genesis is all about. Genesis is about putting a people together. And John is to get us to believe in Jesus. And he starts out in the beginning, just like Genesis. You know, it's really fascinating to me that Matthew, in his birth narrative of Jesus... 
Matthew talks about the Magi. You ever wonder how those guys knew that that comet that they saw met, meant that there was a, son, a child born in Bethlehem or in the, in the area around Jerusalem? How did they know that that was a, a king's birth? And yet here Matthew has the Magi coming from the east, from Persia, from Iraq and Iran. They were wise. They studied the stars. I went out to West Texas every week for six weeks or eight weeks, filling in for uh, Jim Hester out in Crane. You know where Crane is? 50 miles southwest of Midland Odessa Airport. Uh, right next to the end of the world, uh, they have a sign that says, uh, a, a T-shirt that says, a crane is not the end of the world, but you can see it from here. Uh, it's an amazing place, and I got to go out there, and I saw the hail bop. Remember that comment? Every week, I couldn't see it in Dallas because it's too bright, but when I get out there in West Texas, there's nothing. And we're driving down, I could see that thing every week move a couple of degrees further across the sky. And I kept, and it's, you could see its tail out behind it. And I was thinking of uh, the Magi. Uh, they, they saw this comet, and there's only one comet, only one celestial phenomenon between 10 BC and 10 AD listed in the Chinese archives. And it's in 5 BC. Our calendar's off by five years. Jesus was born uh, in 5 B.C., probably in the fall of 5 B.C. And uh, we know that because that's the only star. And the farther it went, the more its tail pointed up. So by the time it got to Jerusalem and, and Bethlehem, it's like a finger pointing down to where Jesus was. And these guys somehow knew, maybe from the prophecy of Balaam back in the 22nd chapter of Numbers, where he says a star will rise out of Jacob. Maybe that's how they knew, because they were from the same area Balaam was from. But it's fascinating, you know, to study this stuff. Matthew talks about Magi. Luke talks about the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus and all the things that went in with Mary and Elizabeth and so on, all the detail. But when you get to John, he presents... God's birth, the birth of Christ, in symbol. The Word who was with God, who was God, the Word became flesh. You know, the light that enlightens everyone is coming into the world. You've got symbol, imagery that John uses all the way through his gospel. And the purpose of his gospel is to get people to believe. So I would always read Genesis first and then read John. And then go anywhere and read. But read the Bible. Get into the Word. Become like this man whose greatest delight is in the law of the Lord. And on His law, He meditates day and night. Meditate. That's, that's a word that means a cow chewing its cud. It means you're thinking it over. You're mulling it over. You're talking it over with others. You know, the church is supposed to come together together 
when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, each one will have a revelation or a hymn or a psalm or a message. You know, when you come together, you need to share the Word with each other. This is one of the things I think we've lost in America. We've lost prayer, we've lost fasting, and we've lost the Word. We have it. It's right here. And we go to Bible studies and shine our lights in each other's eyes. But, you know, Jesus gave us only one prayer request in all His ministry on earth. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that He'll send more workers into the field. You know, everybody wants to come around His table. But we need people who will study the Word and commit to going out into the field and talking to people about Jesus. Ask God to give you somebody to talk to and have the Word ready in you, in your heart, in your mind. You know, fill up on the Word. If you fill up on the Word, Paul says, you will also fill up on the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit will help you to delight in the law. The greatest delight I get, and it's not often enough, is when I'm in my study and I run across something in the Bible I haven't seen before or something I have seen and hadn't hit me. I'm sure you've had that happen. Or you read something again and again and then one day it gets into you and you see what it's talking about. And you have a quantum leap in knowledge. That's a great thrill. Another one is to go hear some great preacher who will open the Word and shine the searchlight of God's Word into my heart. I love that. I got to do some of that a couple weeks ago in the Kaimishis. I spoke five times uh, in the Kaimishi men's clinic and the women's clinic, which they have with it now, so men and their wives can go. And uh, it's an incredible experience. Um, Get in the Word. Let me just leave that with you. Get in the Word. Let that become your greatest joy. And if that happens, you will have a personal relationship with Jesus that rises above the written Word. And then number 3, verse 3. Jeremiah quotes this psalm, verse 3. I think it's chapter 17, but it could be somewhere else. I know Jeremiah quotes it. 17, 7, and 8. Thank you. The Bible Encyclopedia has spoken. <laughs> yeah, you got a cross-reference. <laughs> okay, he is like a tree planted by... Now, let me, let me translate this from the Hebrew. He is like a tree transplanted in canals of water. Now, it's not quite as poetic that way. But it means this tree was transplanted. Some gardener took this tree out of the desert and moved it in right next to the source of life. This man is like a tree, and his roots are in the water of life. Channels of water, literally irrigation ditches is what the word actually means. This translated streams. So here's a man who came out of the world into the church, and his roots are in the word of life, in the water of life which yields its fruit in season. This tree always produces fruit when you expect it. 
This is a man whose leaf does not wither. In other words, he's consistent. He's an evergreen. He's always the same. This guy doesn't change from one week to the next. He is the same because the Word of God lives in him. And Jesus is coming to life in him. You know, Paul says that God foreknew us and predestined us to become like his Son. And when we do that, Jesus comes alive in, in us, and we become consistent. We don't change all the time. We're not up and down. We're not moody. Uh, even every 28 days, you know, uh, if, if, you, uh, if you study the Word, you'll stay balanced. And if you, ladies, if you do have a problem, take B6. It'll clear it up. I'm sorry. Got off on my subject. 100 milligrams of B6 will clear it up. My, my daughter used to, our daughter used to go berserk every 28 days. I mean berserk. <laughs> Insane. She will tell you. And I went out, I read about it, and I went out and got some B6 and gave her 100 milligrams a day and couldn't even tell you know, when, when that time of the month came around. It, it's amazing the difference it makes. So, a word to the wise. You guys might want to get your wives. B6. <laughs> Either that or just learn to pray, you know. God help us. <laughs> Thank you. He is like a tree planted by streams of water who yields his fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, never withers, Whatever he does, the Hebrew text says, he makes it prosper. And I think that he there, the rabbis say that refers to God. Whatever a man, this man does, God makes it prosper. God will bless this man in what he does. Now that's the first three verses, and that's about the joys of a man who is blessed by the Word of God. He's consistent. He's always the same. He's always dependable. And he bears fruit. And his roots are in the source of life. Now, here's the other side of the coin. Not so the wicked. Strongest negative in Hebrew. Not so the wicked. They're not like this tree with deep roots. You know, you don't get out in the morning usually and look to see if your tree is still there. Right? Well, if you live in West Texas, you might, but... Uh, or maybe even Oklahoma, some parts. I heard you all had a tornado up this way. Called Harold or texted him that night to see if they were all right, and he said it went north of us. We had a few down in Dallas area, I guess you know, too. But not so the wicked. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. A wind, literally, a wind, any wind will blow the chaff away. You know what chaff is, right? It's the outer hull of the grain. And when you're, in those days, they would uh, crush the grain with, with sledges driven by an ox. And uh, when the grain was crushed, they would take a thing that looked like a fat, wide leaf rake, and they would put it underneath that grain and raise it up and shake it. And the wind would blow the chaff away. So, you know, which kind of life offers the better 
the better view for a person? A tree or chaff? I think you want to be like a tree and not like something that just blows away on any wind. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. He's talking about the end of the world. Wicked people will be terrified. They'll be on their faces. Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Sinners won't join with those of us who are believers. When Jesus comes back, the church is going to say, this is the one we've been trying to tell you about. But the others are going to cry out for the rocks and mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. You ever heard of a lamb having wrath? He's also a lion, you know. For Yahweh watches over. Literally, the, the, the Hebrew text says, For Yahweh is a knower of the way of the righteous. In other words, He always knows us. He's always intimate with us. This word is the same word for Adam knew Eve, and she conceived. In other words, God is intimate with us. He is intimate with the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Perish is an interesting word. It's one of three words used in the Bible to describe hell. Perish, destruction, and the second death. Now, what this tells me is that people who go to hell don't live forever, in spite of what we grew up believing. And all of us grew up believing in immortality of the soul, but that is not biblical. Immortality of the soul is a Greek philosophical phrase. The Bible says God alone has immortality. And in the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 says, He will give us immortality. The mortal will put on immortality. The corruptible will put on incorruptibility. And death will be swallowed up in victory. See, we will live forever. Eternal life is promised to the believer. The unbeliever is not promised eternal life. In fact, 22 times the Bible says, Each person will be repaid according to their deeds. That make sense? In other words, everybody's going to be punished what they deserve. God is just. He's the one who said eye for eye, hand for hand, foot for foot, blow for blow, stripe for stripe, life for life. Seven exact equals between the crime and the punishment. God's not going to punish somebody forever and ever and ever and ever. That makes no sense whatsoever. I don't know where that comes from. It's from the doctrine of immortal soul that came out of Greek philosophy. But you show that, show me that in the Bible somewhere. Again and again, the Bible says man is mortal. Mortal is a Greek word, thanatos, which means being toward death. You know, those who don't have eternal life aren't going to live forever. Does that make sense? They'll be repaid according to their deeds. Jesus said those who obey, ig- disobey ignorantly will be beaten with few stripes. Those who disobey knowingly will be beaten with many stripes. So there'll be levels of reward and levels of punishment. Now, what I want to do at the end of every session, if we can, except for the sermon today, and you can ask me about anything you want, I want to take about four or five minutes and see what questions you have. 